Last week, we started walking together, didn't we? Toward a village. We started walking toward a place called Emmaus with a couple disciples. They didn't know we were with them. We just drew up alongside them as well in the Word of God. And we were listening to them and we were watching them as they walked and they were sad. These disciples weren't among the twelve. Often when we think of the disciples, we think of those twelve. We're reminded throughout the Gospels, more than the twelve followed Jesus as disciples. So when we see that there are disciples going a certain way, we have to ask, are those of the twelve? Or are those those kinds in addition to the twelve? And it's the latter in this case. In addition to the twelve, here are a couple disciples sad and traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus, the home. We know one of the disciples is a male. His name is Cleopas, and the other may be his wife. The other disciple is unnamed, but they're on a walk, heading home, and a third person suddenly joins them. This is not a person who calls out from a distance, which way are you going? Can I travel with you? Instead, we're told in verse 15, while they were talking, Jesus drew near and went with them. There seems to be in the narrative of the text a suddenness of his arrival that all of a sudden, oh my, here is this person coming along. You don't want to be sneaked up on in the ancient world while you're traveling. And here someone's drawn up alongside them and starts to match their pace. We're told that they didn't know who this third person was because in verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing them. They didn't just have like a poor vision problem and think, well, you know, I've left my lenses at home. I can't really recognize this person's quite blurry. His voice sounds familiar. Who is he? Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That matters because they have they are very familiar with Jesus. What we are seeing here is an extraordinary thing and a a biblical theological lesson unfolding. They failed to perceive or see what all the Christ was to do. What the scriptures and all the prophets from Moses onward had laid out for the Christ to accomplish. So their eyes being kept from recognizing him is also a lesson in a deeper sense that they fail to perceive the scriptures in light of who Christ is. That's why they're sad. They're sad because they don't understand the scriptures. If they understood and believed all that the prophets and forward had said of Jesus, they wouldn't be sad on the road. It's the third day. But alas, it's the third day and they're sad. They were walking to Emmaus, having recently come from the other eleven. They were in Jerusalem still, and those, those gatherings were filled with lament and sorrow because Jesus had died, and with Jesus dying, their hopes had been crucified and buried with Him. Cleopas says to this third person who uh, draws near to them, he says in verse 21, we had hoped. Just listen to the sadness in that. We had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. I bet he said that with a quivering lip. We had hoped that he was the one. While still unrecognized by them, Jesus asked them a question in verse 26. Well, wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And of course, Jesus knows most profoundly, yes, it it was necessary. These two on the road do not realize fully the necessity of all that had taken place. For them, it was bad news. For Jesus, it's the fulfillment of the plan from the foundation of the world. And in verse 27, 
this unidentified traveler began to explain the Old Testament to them. Opening up the scriptures to their minds and showing them how the suffering of the Christ and the glories of the Christ were prophesied there. Okay, well listen, I think we are like those disciples on the Emmaus Road in a sense. We're all on a seven mile journey needing to understand the Bible and perceive Jesus truly. That's our, that's our deep need. We're all on this seven mile journey needing to understand the truth about Him because if we know that He lives and that all that He accomplished was exactly what the Word of God had laid out for the Christ to accomplish, our hope is alive in Him then. Our hope in Jesus is not in vain. So in sovereign grace, Jesus, every Lord's Day we gather, draws near to us in the Word and by the Spirit's power to help us see. And we might not even realize it at the time, but in hindsight, we will realize I love and see and hope in Jesus because I've been with Jesus. That's what we will see. That's what we pray for. We want nothing less Why would we be doing what we're doing? This is not business as usual. We gather on the Lord's Day because the Lord Jesus loves and feeds His people and cares for our souls. We come because He is with us. He's with us in the Word and He's with us by the power of the Spirit and He reigns in the heavens above all things. So when we leave on the Lord's Day, we're strengthened in faith and we grow in our love for the Word of God because Jesus has been with us. And these people don't know it yet in the Emmaus Road. They get where they're going in verse 28 and 29. In these two verses, there's an invitation to stay at the village. That's what we see here. Verse 28 tells us they drew near, or so they drew near, to the village to which they were going. Now, their destination also turns out to be Jesus' destination. He just wants it to be their idea. So here's how the following thing takes place. They arrived there at the village, and he acted as if he were going further. Oh, well, you know, you, it's good to walk with you guys. You know, I'm just projecting here, of course. It's good to walk with you guys. I'm going to go on my way. And, and they realize probably a couple things. Number one, we don't want to be done talking with this man yet, especially after they reflect on how they were feeling inwardly later on in their conversation at the table about what it was like listening to him talk about the Bible. And then... And what they express explicitly is, listen, it's the time of the evening where you should just stay. That's a very kind invitation in the ancient world of hospitality. Very normal, very customary. So he acted and spoke in ways on the road to Emmaus like he was drawing information from them. He knows more than they do about this situation. In fact, earlier on, they were walking and having a conversation. He drew up and he said, oh, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk along the way? And he said, what do you mean? Are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know about the things that have happened? And he says, oh, what things, what things do you mean? And it's concerning Jesus of Nazareth. And so here he's acting as if he's going farther, which continues the way he's interacted with them. He's interacted with them in a way that is drawing from them what needs to happen. Some concerns, the sadness expressed from their heart, the misunderstanding of the scriptures that they're holding, and in this case, hospitality. 
Hospitality is exactly what they offer. This is a little different from Zacchaeus in Luke 19, where Jesus comes up to the tree and says, go into your house today, Zacchaeus, get down, we've got to go. Instead, Jesus walks along these, uh, the road with these, and they invite him in, though of course they think it's uh, their idea. This is his idea. This is exactly according to plan, because they have more to see. In verse 29, they urged him strongly. So they're not indifferent, right? They really want him to stay with them because in the ancient world, it was risky to travel by oneself. Uh, So therefore, hospitality extended to a traveler was often welcomed. If If you traveled by yourself, especially late evening, you could open yourself up to personal injuries or bandits or worse. And so in verse 29, it's evening. The day is far spent. It's just like, look at the position of the sun. Let's look at our watches. Uh, Gee, you know, well, they probably wouldn't have said Jesus, but listen, you should just stay with us. Just stay with us because the day is far spent. This is their urging. This is their strong urging, and he agrees. He went in to stay with them. And according to the Old Testament, hospitality is something shown over and over again. With heavenly encounters. And not all people who in the Old Testament show hospitality realize fully what they're doing at the time. More information unfolds in that hospitality setting. Think of Abraham in Genesis 18. Who is hospitable to angels. And to Lot in Genesis 19. Language about the need for food. And even the time of the day in Genesis 19. Come and stay. Well, here indeed is an encounter. An encounter of the Son of God with these individuals who are showing hospitality. But, uh, you know, as the book of Hebrews says, you never know when you're entertaining angels. Well, you never know when you're entertaining the Lord Jesus Christ in their case. Here they are on the Emmaus Road showing up at the village. You should stay with us. Yeah, that was the right move. Absolutely the right call. And then in verses 30 to 32, a meal takes place. It's understandable. It's late in the evening. In fact, uh, you might feel this way no matter the time of day. If you've just walked seven miles, you know what we should do now is get something to eat. Let's get something to eat. They've walked these seven miles, this journey, all the way to the village. And they're now going to go to the table together and break bread and invite their traveler too. Their traveler's going to be hungry. And this is their home. In fact, this is one of many meal scenes In the Gospel of Luke. New Testament scholars have noticed for lengths of time how important meal scenes are to Jesus' ministry. They're everywhere. And that's not just because we're wanting to remind you, hey, you know what? Jesus also had to eat. That's, That's implied with the incarnation. It's implied with the fact that he is mortal in his human nature. This is telling us, like the other scenes tell us, important context and conversations unfold. The first meal in the Gospel of Luke is a feast at Levi's house. Levi was a tax collector. It's Matthew, the the disciple known as Matthew. In in Luke chapter 5, we see that feast. The second one is a meal at a Pharisee's house. Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. And he will share bread with Pharisees. And he he will look at those who are despised by the religious leaders. And he will eat with those unbelieving religious leaders also. And he will will seek to converse 
and teach and answer and minister. And yet the responses are divided, aren't they? So the second meal is at a Pharisee's house in Luke 7. The third meal, Luke 9, outside. 5,000 people, a little bit of bread and fish. That meal scene is massive. There wouldn't be a table big enough. The field has to serve as the table. The feeding of the 5,000 in this miraculous setting in Luke 9, which the other Gospels tell us of too. The fourth meal setting is at Martha's house. Now, Martha's serving and Mary is at the, at the feed and, and Jesus is teaching and instructing and Martha in, in Luke chapter 10 is key to that episode. The fifth meal scene is at a Pharisee's house again in Luke 11. Another Pharisee's home. Despite all of their suspicion about Jesus, all of the side-eye glances they give him, we're not sure about this guy, we're not sure we want him to go on much longer with the kinds of things he's saying and doing. But nonetheless, Jesus found among those religious leaders in Luke 11. And then a ruler of the Pharisees' home in Luke 14, where Jesus teaches about humility and honor in the kingdom of God, and not thinking and evaluating people from worldly lenses and criteria. Luke 14, a marvelous scene. Before the cross, there are seven meal scenes. The seventh one is the Last Supper. Before the cross, there are seven meal scenes in Luke's gospel. The seventh is the Last Supper. Arguably, the one where the most important things were said. Take this bread, this is my body given for you. This cup, this is my blood of the, blood of the new covenant given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Luke 22 gives us the seventh and final meal scene before the cross. But remarkably, we are not done with meal scenes after the cross either. After the cross... Here in Luke 24, after the cross and the resurrection from the dead, and on the first day of the week, this is the resurrection morning, well, resurrection evening, I suppose, but it is the day of the resurrection, the first day of the week. He, on the first day of the week, sits with these people at a table, and this meal is going to be quite significant. If you look at all those other seven, Levi, the Pharisees' home, the 5,000s that were following after Jesus, Martha, the other Pharisee's home, the ruler of the Pharisees, the disciples in the Last Supper. They all knew who they were at the table with. Nobody's in any doubt. This is Jesus of Nazareth. We're there and even curious because of who he is. This scene at the table, they have no idea who they are with. This is the only place in Luke's gospel where you have a meal scene and they are not there because he's Jesus. Now, they're hospitable. And admirably so. We want to commend that. What a wonderful virtue. And yet, oh, if they only knew who it is. And then, remarkably, in verse 30, Jesus begins to act in ways that only the host of a home would act. A couple possibilities here. It could be, as was sometimes the case, that you would defer... To the guest in some way. And you might see this maybe if you had someone in your home and you invited your guest to, to pray over the meal. Okay, that, that might happen. It's like, we're so glad you're here. Would you offer the blessing over the food? You might, as the, the host home, still choose to do that yourself. Well, you would expect most of the time that the host of the home in the ancient world would conduct the following things. Jesus, their guest, the traveler that they have only known for a few miles, they think. He takes bread. He offers words of blessing. 
he breaks it and begins to give it. Now, if this was entirely his initiative, that may have seemed quite strange indeed. It doesn't tell us here. It doesn't tell us whether they deferred to him to do this as the guest or whether he said, will you, will you just uh, pass the bread for a moment? I, I, uh, I want to take it from here. I know how this should go. And he takes the bread and then several actions are described. He takes it. He blesses it. He breaks it. He gives it. These actions are revelatory. You might say, well, Luke is really like drawing out this verse, is he not? By Rather than just saying they ate some bread together or they started to share it. Luke is just giving you a bunch of verbs back to back. The reason Luke wants you to know he took it, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. Is because all four of those actions took place at the feeding of the 5,000. In Luke 9.16, he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. And so an attentive reader to the gospel, especially if you read it in large chunks where you had spent some time in Luke 9, and then you got to Luke 24, and you think, wait a second here, deja vu, I've seen something like this before. This is not normal in terms of what the words he's saying, the kinds of actions that we've been a part of with. And it tells us in verse 30, he gave it to them. Luke's readers would also be, it would also be understandable if we thought of the Last Supper. He took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it. Those action verbs, four in each case, in Luke 9 and in Luke 22, are remarkable when we see this. Now, you would be correct to remember that in Luke 22, only the 12 disciples are there. Who are these Emmaus people? Not among the 12. Uh, So I don't want to imply that these two disciples were among the 12 at the Last Supper. But the disciples and all the rest that Luke 24 tells us about in verse 10, uh, verses 9 and 10, they've all been huddled up together in Jerusalem talking. So if the disciples, the 12, or now the 11, have been sharing with sorrow and lament about what their night was like with Jesus on that Friday, the things he last said and the things he last did, it's very reasonable that these two in Emmaus have heard reflections already. Maybe they were even present among the 5,000 plus in the field in Luke 9 when he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it. Why would the feeding of the 5,000 be especially interesting? If you go back to Luke 9, right before that miracle, Herod Antipas is wondering about the identity of Jesus. Who is this man? He doesn't, let's use the word, recognize who he is. And then right after the feeding of the 5,000, something else that's interesting that's taking place. Jesus record, Luke records for us Jesus' question to his disciples. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And right in the middle of these people reflecting on trying to recognize the truth about Jesus, there's this taking, blessing, breaking, and giving. And I think the strategic placement of that in Luke 9 means the miracle of Jesus, the taking of this bread is revelatory. Because it's not just a miracle to feed the hungry. Jesus is bread. He is the bread of life. By his own claim. So who is this man giving bread to feed us? 
He's bread for sinners. That's who he is. He's the life for the world. He's the bread of life come down from heaven, not like the manna they knew and that their forefathers ate in the days of old. No, he is the kind of bread that when you look to him and you see him and you trust in him, you live with life everlasting because you have him and he is in himself life everlasting. So this meal with these two Emmaus disciples one of whom is named Cleopas. They're eating with, the, with Jesus at the table after he has laid down his life, after he's given himself as bread. The Last Supper took place before he was broken. This meal takes place after he was broken. But the meals all point to himself being given for sinners. These meals are revelatory for those with hearts to see. And things begin to click. And no doubt the work of the Spirit is in view because in verse 31, their eyes were opened. The passive verbs matter. In verse 16, they were kept from recognizing Him. You see, that's so different from saying they didn't recognize Him. Because there's all sorts of reasons if the latter was the case. They didn't recognize Him. Why? They have a vision issue? Was He just too far away? Uh, What was the problem? To say they were kept from recognizing him, that's different. Same thing here in verse 31. It didn't say they opened their eyes. It says their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened by God. The work of the Spirit through the actions of Christ. Their eyes were opened. They were no longer kept from recognizing him. Some interpreters throughout church history have often wondered, could they have seen at the table there, right in front of them, those marks on his hands? And here he's like, hey, will you uh, hand me this bread? And he begins to hand it to them and they look down and they think, wait a second. And their eyes get really big. Now, there's no attention drawn to the nail marks here, but nail marks are being given some attention or his wounds later on in the chapter. So that's a possibility, but it does tell us in verse 35, they told the other disciples how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. In this action, the words, the the breaking and passing out of these elements, oh, this, this was by the Spirit of God used to open their eyes. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And as soon as they saw who they were dealing with, they didn't see him anymore. The irony. Here they finally recognize who's right in front of them. And then he is not in front of them. And not because he got up and said, now I'm going to go about my schedule for the rest of the day. I mean, they, they had a room ready. They were ready to house him for the night. And then it's telling us in verse 31, he vanished from their sight. If they hadn't recognized who this was, that would have been a terrifying experience. Because there's nothing normal about that. My goodness. Now, if we think back to the Last Supper, Jesus had told his disciples, you know, take this bread and do this in remembrance of me. And perhaps it's this kind of action that here at the table, Jesus has taken and blessed and broken and given. And there is a flooding of remembrance. Their eyes were opened. That's who this is. In fact, remembrance or understanding is slow going for the characters in Luke 24. In Luke 24, the women come to the empty tomb 
And they brought their spices with them, not expecting a resurrection and a rolled stone. But we're told that the angel says to them, remember how he told you? Because they didn't. Remember? And then we're told after the angel recounts some of the teachings of Jesus that he would suffer and die, that he would rise from the dead. Luke 24, 8. And they remembered his words. It's like it came flooding their understanding and heart. It's like, yes, that's right. That's right. My mind sees. My mind understands. These Emmaus disciples are experiencing this. They see who he is and then no longer see him. And by virtue of him vanishing from their sight, this would only further confirm the extraordinary identity they've come to conclude. Yes, indeed. Not only do they see truly who he is, now in his resurrected body, his body is capable of things that in its mortality was not. Here, by putting on imperishable and immortality, by being glorified physically, Christ in his living, eternal, embodied glory is capable of things that these disciples will be amazed and left in awe at. He vanished from their sight. Later on in John chapter 20, when he comes to the disciples, John is John presses the point of the extraordinary appearances of Jesus because John says, and when the doors were locked, he came among them. Because John doesn't even want you to think, oh, well, Luke's probably leaving out the part, or John's leaving out the part where they heard the knock at the door and said, who in the world could this be? You, someone go get the door. They won't stop knocking. I hope it's not the Romans. And then it's Jesus. Hey, guys. Instead, the doors are locked. And it tells us in John 20, they were locked for fear of the Jews. And then suddenly Jesus is among them. Capable of things. Now, interpreters throughout the years have sometimes looked at this and said, well, because of what his body was capable of, it seems less physical. C.S. Lewis and other writers over the years have reflected on the glorified physicality of Christ. And he said, it's not that Jesus' body is less real than the walls, it's that the walls are less real now than Jesus' body. And that in his eternal embodied state, Christ in his glorified physicality is not limited by the things that these at the table are limited by. Their eyes were opened. They recognized Him. He vanished from their sight. In verse 32, they began to say to each other, now I don't know how long they would have sat there in silence processing this. I don't know if they immediately started talking or if about a good 60 seconds went by and said, well, one of us needs to say something. Uh, But here, they ask a question. And they're asking each other this question. They're they're sort of probing each other because they've been with Jesus and now's this time where the third person traveling is no longer with them and now they're going to talk and reflect. The nature of their reflection is this question. And they're both asking it of each other. Didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? Things are making sense to them, you see. Things are clicking in their minds and they are understanding why it was That when that man talked about the Old Testament with them, their hearts were filled with a kind of enthusiasm and burning joy. This is not heartburn in a bad way, all right? There's a kind of heartburn none of us want. That's not what this is. When he's talking about something burning in our hearts, this is not painful. This is a rising zeal and flame that has, I think, an Old Testament resonance to it. Because to encounter something divine in the Old Testament is often 
described with heat and fire. He's think for a moment about Moses. He draws near to Mount Horeb in Exodus 3 to a bush that's on fire. It's an encounter with God. The Israelites are led by a pillar of fire out of Egypt and through the wilderness. When they go to Mount Sinai, there is fire upon the mountain when the Israelites arrive there because they have come to meet with God. On the bronze altar of sacrifice, flame lights up the sacrifice, turns it into smoke, an aroma pleasing to God. Fire on the golden lampstand in the holy place of the tabernacle and temple. Think of the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 20, verse 9, he's got what he calls a burning fire shut up in his bones and he cannot hold it in. When these disciples say to each other, didn't you feel the same thing I felt when he was talking? What were you feeling? Was your heart just not lit up by what he was saying? Could you not feel the delight and thrill rising? Did you feel that? He said, the other says, yes, that's exactly what I felt. I felt the same thing. All together perceiving and, and internalizing the words of Christ. And it is affecting them on the inside. And they realize the reason they felt that way. The reason their hearts were stirred and their affections deepened is because they had been with Jesus. And they realized in hindsight what had happened. Jesus had opened the Scriptures to them. Do you see that at the end of verse 32? Our hearts burning while opening the Scriptures. Do not separate what God has joined together. Christ is talking to them about Moses and the prophets and all the rest and demonstrating how they tell of Him. And a result of understanding Christ in the Scriptures is a heart deepening in love, affections, zeal, and fire on the inside. Those things happen together. It is a growing in knowledge of the Word of God. Not apart from the Word of God, but through and by the Holy Word of God. The Bible is a burning bush. And when you open its pages and you grow in your understanding of it and you behold Christ in it, what happens to us on the inside? In our minds and in our hearts and how God uses that by His Holy Spirit to grow and stir and mature and lead and fill us with a flame of joy and affection. The Bible is like this. The Scriptures are opened by the Lord Jesus Himself. Now, did the problems in the lives of the disciples all just go away from that point onward? No. In the days to come, were they no longer without any challenges or trials? No. But they know that Jesus lives and that changes everything. They know that He lives. And they understand that He is a living hope because He's the hope that the Word of God had held out. Their hope was not in vain. They are no longer sad because of that crucifixion and burial where their Redeemer was lost for good. He was not lost for good. Raised from the dead never to die again. So verses 30 to 32 unpack that exchange and then that reflection in that verse 32 question. What are they going to do from this point? Well, it's, here's what they don't say. 
Well, you know, just like we told the traveler when we didn't know his name, the sun is on its way down. You know, it's late in the evening. Maybe we should just wait until morning. First thing in the morning, uh, you know, Cleopas, we'll get up and uh, we'll put the coffee on and then we'll uh, think about uh, when they might be getting up over there in Jerusalem and we'll start our journey. No, none of it goes that way. Verse 33, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. That's the only thing that makes sense at this point. They have just traveled seven miles with Jesus. And they walked that seven miles. And I wonder if Cleopas looked to the other disciple and says, you want to run this seven? Uh, you know, we got to go back to Jerusalem, but I don't feel like walking. I, I know the hour is late and I know it's seven miles. We've got a message to share. They show up with news. They return to Jerusalem, these two. And they found the eleven. And those who were with them together. This means a huge group are present, right? You've got the 11, and then you've got more than just the 11, and now these other two that had separated have now returned. That's kind of odd. They probably did knock on the door. I don't think they just appeared among them. So here they are. Who are these people? Oh, it's Cleopas. What are you doing back? But when Cleopas comes in, the group of the 11 say first, the Lord has risen indeed. Now, if you're Cleopas, you're thinking, well, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> In fact, we ran here, maybe, all those seven miles. You know, we got here because we wanted to tell you that. They opened the door, and the group on the inside said, he's risen indeed. Well, we already know. And how do you know? All of a sudden, this joyful exchange of information begins to take place. It tells us in verse 34, the announcement, the Lord is risen indeed, came from those 11 and those gathered together. And here's why. An announcement specifically is that the Lord Jesus has appeared to Simon. Now, we didn't skip any passages in our exposition of Luke's gospel, I promise. We didn't skip the Lord's appearance to Simon. And you can search in the resurrection accounts, the post-resurrection appearances with John's gospel and Mark's and Matthew's. You won't find it. There is a passage later on in John 21 where Jesus and Peter are encountering the with the disciples. Jesus is encountering Peter with the other disciples beside a sea. That is not what's talked about here. This is a first day of the week, the resurrection day encounter. That John 21 encounter with Peter is days and days later than that. Over a week that's gone by. This encounter isn't narrated in the Gospels at all. We're just told about it. I would love to know about that encounter. Because the last time Peter saw Jesus alive. The last time Peter saw Jesus alive. That the Gospels tell us. He was in the courtyard saying, I don't know that man. I'm not one of them. I'm not one of those disciples. And Jesus and Peter Looked and the Lord looked at Peter. Peter fled the scene weeping bitterly. So in a scene that is not narrated for us in the Gospels, but is talked about here. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, And Christ appeared to Cephas, who is Peter. Peter experiences a post-resurrection encounter with the Lord Jesus whom he had earlier denied. What a mercy. The Lord had looked to Peter with sovereign compassion grace and even approaching Peter in his resurrected state in an unnarrated scene 
When the disciples say the Lord has appeared to Simon, that's because Simon then told that group what's happened. And Peter, given what's all that all that transpired in the earlier hours, this is good news for Peter. They found the eleven, those who had gathered together, who announced the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then in verse 35, now Cleopas and the other disciple get to share. They're just holding it up like fire in their bones. They can't keep it in. They've got to tell. Then they told what had happened on the road. Here we were. We were just walking along. This person drew up near to us. We hadn't recognized him until later. And then how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. You walked with Jesus? Yep, all seven miles. He came to our house. We sat down with bread. Then he took the bread and he began saying things. And, and then it's like it clicked. I, we, we saw what was happening and who this was. Retelling what had happened was important. It was the corporate remembrance together. They are reminding and announcing to each other and holding before all of their, their minds, the Lord Jesus is risen indeed. In fact, in verse 34, the Lord has risen indeed. This is a particular word indeed that appears once more in Luke's gospel. And it's at the cross. The Lord has risen indeed. It comes after the centurion at the cross said, this man was innocent indeed. Or this man was truly innocent. And you could translate this here, the Lord has truly risen. It's a statement of certainty. It's a statement of emphasis. It is indeed the case that that man on the cross went to that cross with no sin of his own. The centurion was right. Pilate was right. That man going to that cross is not deserving and has no guilt leading to such a cross. Instead, the death of Jesus was the bearing of our sins. He was the innocent one given for the unrighteous that we might be reconciled to God. And then another indeed that we can add is what these disciples say in verse 34. Not only was he without sin indeed, he is risen indeed too. Truly risen. That's the emphasis. The body is gone from the tomb because a resurrection from the dead has occurred and has appeared to Simon. And then all the information exchanges. That's what they do. They gather together and they would do this on the first day of the week across the centuries of the church. They would gather together and they would hold forth the truth of the risen Christ because on that first Easter morning when the body was empty, the tomb had been empty ever since. And therefore it made sense that these people who were proclaiming the resurrection would have lives that were now reoriented and defined by the news of the risen Lord Jesus. Because he was raised from the dead. Everything is different. He's not just some interesting teacher that was traveling through Galilee for a few years. He wasn't just someone who was able to garner a widespread following. But like all good movements, some might come to an end and his did too eventually. Instead, they're in a unique scene where here is the son of the living God who builds his church, which will not be prevailed upon by hell or anything else. Instead, Christ Jesus draws and leads and shepherds his people, the risen Lord Jesus. This meal that these two Emmaus disciples ate at was revelatory. Christ was made known to them and their eyes were opened. But this eating scene also reminds me of an eating scene in the early parts of the Bible. 
And it's an eating scene that was filled with very heavy significance in Genesis chapter 3. So I want to take you all the way back for a moment. In Genesis chapter 3, 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. And the tree was desired to make one wise. But it does not say that the Lord took the fruit and gave it to them. The Lord had forbidden the eating of that tree. And she took the fruit. She gave some to her husband. They ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened. And the eyes of both of them were opened. And they have weighing upon them their shame. They recoil from the holiness of God. They hide among the trees of the garden. They have sinned. And in their instincts, in a world in which they will live that will be fallen and corrupt under the judgment of God, they are people in need of grace, though not meriting it. They are people deserving of judgment. But instead, steadfast love and mercy will over and over again be their daily portion as they wake up knowing and following God who preserved them and loved them and clothed them. You don't need these fig leaves. That's not going to cover your shame. I've got to provide for you if you're going to be covered. And through the death of animals, skins cover those two image bearers and they leave clothed by what God had provided. Because the way to deal with our shame and sin will not be through any attempts to cover ourselves. Nor will it do to flee from God. Who could hide among God in the trees of the garden? And have an absurd, ludicrous idea. The only hope is that God, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, will pursue His image bearers and reconcile them to Himself. So that those who took and ate what they ought not to have taken and eaten would one day be surpassed by a meal seen in Luke 24. When the one who is the living God at the table with them will give them and break and give what they are to take and eat and their eyes would be opened. And they would see there not just a sense of their sin, but they would behold the Savior, the Savior of sinners, the bread of life. Let's pray.